Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We will continue through our exposition of the book of Matthew. Matthew 12, we'll be looking this morning at verses 38 through 42. And our subject this morning will be signs of a wicked generation. Signs of a wicked generation. Uh, Look with me at verse 38 of Matthew 12. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. For several messages, we have dealt with disputes between our Lord and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, first of all, questioned back in the beginning of this chapter about why Jesus allowed His disciples to pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath day. And we know how Jesus undid everything that they said and everything that they accused Him of. Then we moved on to Jesus dealing with the man with the withered hand, and He healed him on the Sabbath day as well. And of course, Jesus again dealt with the Pharisees by reminding them that works of mercy and works of healing, of course, are not um, against the Sabbath restrictions that they had made. But both of these events angered the Pharisees in such a way that verses 9 through 14 of the chapter, chapter 12, tells us that they began to plot his death. So everything from that point on was the Pharisees seeking a way, seeking an avenue in which they could put Jesus to death. Last week, we kind of reached what we could call a a pinnacle of these disputes. The Pharisees had a false theory that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub or the prince of the devils which prompted Jesus to warn them about what we learned last week, the unpardonable sin, which is attributing to Satan what is to be attributed only to the work of the Spirit of God. We might say we can see the Pharisees' hearts growing more and more hardened right before our eyes. There is no tenderness. There is no desire to know the truth. There is nothing that suggests that the Pharisees have had a change of heart. As a matter of fact, their question and their request is the question of a hardened heart. The question that the Pharisees ask mockingly use the word master. We would see a sign from you. Now we read that and we think, well, this is a cordial request. No, this is a demand. They're demanding of, quote-unquote, the Master who they don't believe to be the Savior, the Redeemer. They don't believe Him to be God. Master, show us a sign. This dispute, this confrontation now grows even more intense. 
because now they're banded together for the sole purpose of not getting the answers, but plotting his death. That's extremely important to keep in mind. They're not after answers, they're plotting. Plotting the death to find a way to find an avenue to where they can get him. So it's this question or this demand. Master, we would see a sign from thee. You realize what they're asking for is something that had already been done many, many times. Signs and wonders and miracles had already been done before their eyes. And yet the Pharisees say, in order for us to see anything, we need a sign. Christ has already given clear signs to them. And even in our day today, Christ is not going to send you another sign. He's not going to send the unbelieving heart today, the unbelieving, unconverted soul, another sign, and you're not going to demand a sign from Him. It's a wicked generation that seeks after a sign when the signs have already been given. It's an adulterous generation that demands of God, show us a sign. The Pharisees did this, of course, in a mocking manner by calling Him Master. Christ had already, even to this point, had already given clear signs of His identity as the Messiah by fulfilling prophecies and Scripture. There is already enough evidence before what Jesus makes mention of to convince anyone that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's already demonstrated His reason for coming. He's already declared to them that they are sinners. That interaction last week gave the most clear evidence of their hardened heart. When you attribute the work of God to the work of Satan, the heart doesn't get much harder than that. Yet here we see certain scribes and Pharisees, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Our first heading this morning is a simple one. It's a wicked generation seeks after additional signs from Christ. A wicked generation seeks after additional signs from Christ. Have you ever been, by way of an application to begin with, have you ever been dealing with someone who is an unbeliever who says to you, if I could only this or I could only that, if I could only see God, if I could only see the evidence that what God you're talking about is truly in existence, if I could only see, you realize that person is asking for a sign. They're asking for God to do something more than what He's already done. He's already given us clear signs that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. To seek after another sign is to fall into the category of what Jesus calls these Pharisees. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. So if your heart today says, I want a sign, the Bible clearly says that is the, that's the characteristic of an evil and adulterous generation. Why does he say that? Because Jesus is cruel and uncaring and non-compassionate? No, because every sign that you need has already been given. And that there are no additional signs coming. Jesus Christ has declared that he has already given those signs. Now remember, contextually, Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. He has not yet been put on the cross, has not yet died, he's not yet been buried, he's not yet been put into that tomb, he's not yet raised from the grave, he's not yet been seen by many witnesses, and he's not yet ascended to the grave, but he's telling these Pharisees, you are an evil and adulterous generation, 
because already enough signs have been given to you to believe that I am the Messiah and I am the Savior. He uses two biblical illustrations, which, by the way, are the best illustrations we can ever use in a sermon, is a Bible illustration. That's why we read Jonah and that's why we read 1 Kings because Jesus is going to point them back to two signs that have already clearly declared and they're prophetic in a way because they're professing and prophesying that this is what he came to do. That those stories were not just random Bible stories that we put on a flannel graph board. No, these are stories meant to prove to an evil and wicked generation that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. It couldn't be any more clear. So the Pharisees have changed their approach a bit. They've been very confrontational, and now they seem to take the more subtle approach. Master, we would see a sign from thee. They're pursuing the same end goal. We want you dead. That's their goal. They are nothing more than what we would call today the very religious. Um, It is not an appropriate term for a child of God to call themselves religious. Religious is not a term of endearment. Many people are religious about a lot of different things. I don't consider myself religious. But yet the world looks and says, well, you're one of those religious fanatics. You're one of those people, I suppose, that only believe that Christ is the only way of salvation. And we're labeled fanatics. then you'll have to label me a fanatic because Jesus Christ is the only way. Christ is the only way of salvation. There is no other coming. I don't need another sign. I don't need another proof. He's already given us clear signs of who He is. But what they're doing by demanding this sign is they are reflecting or manifesting what's already in their heart. This is a question not of a seeker, Seeker-sensitive is a term that makes me cringe anyway, but this is not a seeker. This is a person who desires to entangle. This is a person and a group of Pharisees who do not really want anything that he has to say. They just are manifesting a hateful heart. How could they ignore what they have already seen? How could they ignore the signs that Jesus gave them by healing them? When he healed the withered man's hand, when he cast out the demons, he's already given them signs that were prophetic in the Old Testament about this is what the Messiah would do. There are no further signs. These inquirers were not inquirers at all. They were conspirators. They're trying to find a way to defeat him. Every one of these miracles of our Lord, they treat as if it never happened. You realize that the atheist has to get themselves out of a whole lot of quandaries. The atheist has to deny the very existence and the very appearance of what cannot be argued with. The atheistic argument is really a foolish one because they don't have an answer or a response to give to what can only be declared as the works of God. Yet the atheist says, I just, I just don't believe. They don't believe because they don't want to believe. The Pharisees did not want to believe. They were not looking for a conversation to give them belief. No, they were treating it as an opportunity. Christ speaks to them and he answered and said unto them. 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. This is not sugar-coated. It's just directed right at the Pharisees. It is only the evil and an adulterous generation that demands another sign from me. So what right would we have today of demanding another sign from God? Is it truly sinful, even as a lost person here today or a person who's listening by live stream, for you to be unconverted? Is it a sin for you to demand another sign from God? I would say he would say an evil and adulterous generation requests that because I've already shown you the signs. They had to deny what had already taken place. We have people today who treat the miracles of the Bible, they treat the Word of God as if they're nothing. They treat Christ's death upon the cross as if it's nothing more than a historical event. Or they deny the resurrection, which Jesus is getting to in just a moment. And he says, there are people, stories that are going to rise up in condemnation against your unbelief. And he says, Jonah is going to rise. Jonah is an example of a condemnation of your unbelief. The queen of Sheba, an unlikely character, rises up in condemnation against your unbelief. That's what he's telling them. You see, those who treat the gospel as if it's nothing... They treat the preaching of the Word of God as if it's nothing. They don't want to believe. It's been said, some of you might be familiar with James Montgomery Boyce. I consult a lot of his works. It's, he, he, he puts things right where it is, and that's the kind of commentaries I like. And he said this, he said, If God decided to give the whole world a sign about Jesus, He could arrange the stars in the sky in such a way that they would spell out the message, Jesus is my only begotten Son. But if God did that, people would simply say, I wonder what astronomical perturbation caused that chance alignment of the stars. <laughs> one man commented on that. He said, he was right. No one would believe a message written in the stars any more than they believe the Bible because they are part of an evil and adulterous generation. They don't believe because they don't want to believe. So even if you demand a sign and God writes it in the sky, you still won't believe. Everybody's asking for a sign. The sign would matter. Even if a person who's in hell today is able to go back and warn their family, as we read in the Gospels, they won't listen. You see, the reality is these Pharisees had all the signs they needed, and yet they were un in unbelief. So a wicked and evil, adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Verse 40, we see the second heading, that the first great sign of Christ is His resurrection. Now you'll see how Jesus, as this master teacher, in verse 40, at the end of verse 39, He says, that an evil adulterous generation seeks after a sign and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Every Pharisee, every religious leader knew the story of Jonah. This would not be like me talking to an atheist and say, have you ever heard about the story of Jonah? Every Pharisee knew the prophet Jonah. They knew the story of what happened to him. And they also knew of the great repentance that took place in the people of Nineveh. Jonah's story was not in secret. Sadly, Jonah's story in very low, soft churches 
is it's just a story about a man who was swallowed by a great big fish. Jesus is using this as one of the greatest signs that's already been given. Because everything about that fish being prepared by God himself to swallow Jonah who had been thrown overboard. By the way, that fish was prepared by God. That was not a random chance encounter. God prepared that fish, intentionally left him there in the belly of that fish for three days as a picture of the Lord who would go into the belly of the earth for three days. Jesus is telling the the Pharisees, this is exactly the sign I gave to you. And he said, this is the sign that I'm giving you. There's not another sign coming. The great sign of our Lord's mission as the Messiah is his resurrection. And the very fact that his resurrection points us back to the reality that there is a gospel of salvation for those who are the heathen, we might say. He symbolizes his own commission by the symbols of Jonah. Jonah cast overboard. Christ also cast aside as nothing. The sailors of Jonah took him, cast him overboard. The very sacrifice of Jonah, if you read that story, it calmed the sea. Jonah being tossed overboard calmed the sea. Again, that's not a coincidence. Our Lord's death makes peace. It reconciles sinful man to God. And man must be reconciled to God. It's not an option. In order for a man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, he must be reconciled to God. He can only be reconciled to God by the sacrifice of Christ Jesus alone. Our Lord, while he was in that borrowed tomb, just as Jonah was in the belly of that fish, Jonah, we know the story, how that he is, we'll use it, coughed up onto the sea, up onto the shore. Christ came forth from that grave, rising from the dead. You realize when Jonah, and that's what Jonah chapter 3 is all about, when Jonah came back from the dead, He served and he drew the attention, called the attention of every single person under the sound of his voice. The resurrection of Christ calls to attention to every single eye about the reality of man's sin and the reality of the resurrection and the reality that this is the Savior of the world. There's no other sign coming. Jesus didn't use this story because it was a cute story to tell the kids. He used it to tell the religious experts of the day. The religious experts of the day, you don't even see the sign. Because you don't want to see it. Have you ever argued with somebody who didn't really want to know the truth? Nothing more frustrating than arguing with a person who's just trying to argue for the sake of arguing. They have no desire to know the truth. They just want to argue for the sake of arguing. It's where we take those verses and say, answer not a fool in his folly. Sometimes it's better just to walk away than to continue an argument for a person who just does not want to believe. Everything you say, they have an answer for. Every reason in the world to not believe is to deny the signs that Christ has already given us. 
the man who came back from that burial at sea is sent forth to preach. He preaches to Nineveh. Now we know later on in the book of Jonah, he becomes almost angry at God that God allowed that wicked people to repent. Thankfully, God is not like that. (laughs) Thankfully, God doesn't have the attitude that Jonah had saying these wicked Ninevites should never have gotten converted. They should have never repented. But yet Christ's resurrection demands the attention and demands the obedient faith of all that His message comes to. So the first sign of this, of Christ, is the resurrection. But notice in verse 41, the second sign of Christ is His gospel of salvation for the heathen that brings man to repentance. The very fact that people are brought to repentance of their sin is a sign in the evidence of a Savior. Look what he says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. You see, the very heathen of Nineveh that we read about that great, great awakening, they were convinced by the sign. They were convinced by the prophet's restoration from his, his burial at sea that they repented. Imagine that. They repented at the sign of a prophet preaching who had been buried in the belly of a fish. What Jesus is teaching them is because they repented of that at the preaching of Jonah, they will stand as a condemnation to your unbelief. They repented at Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is standing before you, yet you will not believe. Make no mistake about it, Christ is far superior to Jonah. Right? <laughs> Jonah, we saw, his, his, his depraved heart comes right back out when he's saying, God, why did these people repent? These are wicked people. He said, he's, Christ, I'm, I'm far greater than Jonah. And yet you remain in unbelief. The people at Nineveh repented at the preaching. There was no delay. They put on sackcloth and ashes. The whole city went into mourning and pleaded with God to turn from His anger. If you read the accounts of the Great Awakenings that took place in this country, you will read about something that took place that could only be an act and a work of God. People actually were put into a place and a state of mourning over their sin, begging God to withdraw His anger. He's quoted more often than any, but Jonathan Edwards, when he gave the sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, he read his manuscript like we're reading a book, and people were holding onto the pews in front of them because they were afraid they were going to fall into hell right from their seat. There was such a presence of the fear of God That entire towns turned into mourners. Not this sugar-coated gospel that is just come and pray quickly and then go about your business as if nothing's changed. No, they, the people of Nineveh repented because they realized their lives were in the hands of a just God who is a God of wrath. Make no mistake about it. If you are in sin today and you are out of the body of Christ and you die in those sins, sin must be paid for. 
you might not, you will go to a place called hell with everlasting punishment where the worm dieth not. The fire is never quenched. With a reminder of your unbelief. But it will not be because the signs were not given. And it will not be because you didn't hear the preaching of the Word. No one will ever be able to stand and say, I didn't hear it. Like the Pharisees, you chose not to believe it. Jesus' command to repentance was clearer than the command to repent that Jonah's symbolism gave us. Why were people brought to repentance with Jonah, but now the Pharisees will not? Why are people today, why is this evil, wicked generation slower to repent than seemingly has ever seen before? And we're, we're victims of our time, I realize. We think it's always worse now than it's ever been. But why do people refuse to repent? Why are they asking God to prove Himself over and over and over again? Because they're just like this evil and adulterous generation that Jesus was speaking to. He was speaking to stubborn hearts. Jesus reminds the Pharisees, the religious, spiritual, quote-unquote, experts of the day, they were the reality that they could not even understand the repentance of the Ninevites. Because that alone should have been enough to make them believe. That alone should have been enough to say, there is a Savior. The Ninevites will stand in condemnation of the Jews. Why? Because they repented not at the preaching of Jonah. Those in Nineveh did. The Pharisees, they didn't repent at Jonah, and they're not repenting at one who is greater. You see, those who do believe stand in condemnation to those who will not. It's hard for us to understand this, but to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ stands as a condemnation to those who will not believe. Your faith and trust in Christ serves as a condemnation. The very witness of our Lord is His resurrection from the dead. He speaks about this as it is coming because He says that this, I, there, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You realize when Jesus went to the cross and He went to the grave for three days and three nights, the Pharisees still didn't believe later on either. They didn't believe at the preaching of Jonah and they didn't believe at Jesus' prophecy that He would raise from the grave in three days. Every one of us stands accountable today to believe in the unquestionable fact that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. It's an unquestionable fact. And because of that, we are commanded to repent and believe the gospel. If there was no resurrection, there would be no salvation. There would be no call to repentance and no call to believe in a God and a Savior that died never to live again. That's why I'm not calling you to believe in Buddha today. I'm not calling you to believe in Islam today. I'm calling you to believe, repent of your sin, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. All of the signs have already been given. And His resurrection is the greatest evidence that God the Father was pleased with the sacrifice of the Son. There's nothing else coming, folks. 
There's no other sign going to be given. Jesus' own words, there's nothing else more to show you. Resurrection is a proof. It is, in fact, a sign. But then he gives another, and it is the more unlikely of the two. He gives an example of the Queen of the South, which is a reference to the Queen of Sheba. And of course, the Queen of the South shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. You see, we see that not only did she come great miles and great distances to hear the wisdom of Solomon. This great sign of Christ is His wisdom that's been revealed unto us. Why did the Queen of Sheba go to Solomon? The Scripture tells us that she came to hear His wisdom. The very fame of Solomon's wisdom in those days brought the Queen from a great distance to hear His wisdom. The doctrine And the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ draws attention to the entire world. There is none that are not drawn to the attention of the world. Israel misses the very wisdom of God. The Queen of Sheba, it says, will rise again and will rise up as a witness against whom? Against these unbelieving Jews. Think about how far she went to hear Solomon's wisdom and here the Pharisees are standing right in front of the Son of Man and they won't listen to him. That's why the people who make also say this, if God would just show up in front of me bodily, I'll believe. You want to know what the answer to that is? No, you won't. If Jesus Christ could walk in this door in bodily form again, walk down this aisle, remove me from this pulpit, stand here and preach, repent and believe, you still wouldn't believe. You'd sit here in stunned unbelief. You're demanding a sign for Jesus Christ to come and do again what He's not going to do. He's not coming again to be crucified. He's not coming again to make another atonement for sin. It would make all the Scripture a lie if He came and sacrificed Himself again because He was a once-for-all sacrifice. You wouldn't believe if all 12 apostles, including Judas, were standing here. You still wouldn't believe. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, it wouldn't matter what sign I gave you, you'd still be in unbelief. Imagine thinking about why do we know the things that we know? It's the wisdom of Christ. What other religion, I'm using that term very loosely, but what other teaching meets the single greatest desire of sinful man? There is none. Only the gospel meets the desire and the need of every single human being. Because what is man's greatest need? The forgiveness of sin. Man needs a redeemer. Man needs a savior. No other religion, no other false cult offers what man, what everything that man needs. Christ answers them all. There's been no greater truth revealed. When Jesus is standing before Pilate, Pilate has the nerve to say, What is truth? 
Jesus is the truth. He is the only truth. The same thing that he did with Jonah, he does with Solomon. He says, behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Solomon, as Jonah, was not a perfect person. Solomon thought it was a good thing to have a thousand wives. Solomon thought it was a good thing to do his own thing and to disregard some of the teachings of his father David. Solomon was not a perfect man. And Jesus is saying, your hope is not in Solomon. Your hope is not in Jonah. Your hope is in Me. Because a greater than Solomon is here. Standing before you today is not Christ Himself. It's just simply a messenger. Spurgeon said this, he said, Why, dear reader, if such be your case, do you crave for signs and wonders? Is not the Gospel its own sign and wonder? Is not this the miracle of miracles that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish? Surely that precious Word, whosoever will, let him come and take the water of life freely. And that solemn promise, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out, are better than signs and wonders. A truthful Savior, Spurgeon went on to say, ought to be believed. He is truth itself. Why will you ask for proof of one of the authenticity of one who cannot lie. The devils themselves declared him to be the Son of God. Yet, if you sit here in unbelief, you mistrust his own testimony. I learned a long time ago, after many, many faulting and flailing around, that no person's going to be saved because the speaker is flamboyant, is entertaining. He's going to be saved because it's God's will and He's going to open the eyes. He's going to use the weakest of vessels to convert the soul. Never, ever, ever has God been dependent upon man's eloquence to cause a person to believe. No matter what preacher you've heard throughout the years, if he's preached the gospel to you, You have been given signs and evidences and proofs time and time and time again. And to demand a sign again is to be counted as part of the evil, adulterous generation. There are no more signs coming. Christ was telling them that even the pagan Ninevites... He's talking again to the religious leaders of the day. Even the pagan Ninevites will testify against you in your unbelief. They had the good sense to repent and to believe. They listened to the truth. Scribes and Pharisees would not listen to Jesus no matter what He did. Folks, today, a greater than Jonah is here, a greater... And Solomon is here. And it stands in condemnation if you remain in unbelief. To demand a sign from a Lord who cannot lie, who always has told the truth. Jesus could not have been in league with the devil. 
They are rejecting the only Savior of the world. I don't know if we'll ever see a great awakening again. I know my prayer is for an awakening, not for the revivalist mentality that our churches are falling prey to, but a great awakening to where people truly are awakened to the reality of their sin, the fear of God. By the way, the fear of God is lacking most, most pressing in the church. The church itself is losing the fear of God. We want a lost world to, to understand the fear of God, but are we living in the fear of God? I mean, are, are you truly living today in the fear of God? Or have you bought into that? Well, I've, I checked my salvation box. Do I really need to fear Him anymore? I don't fear being cast into hell any longer because of His good grace, but I fear that I don't live as I should. Do I live with the fear of God before me? You read some of those Puritan writers, I would encourage you. Read some of them and read, read their, just read their literature on the fear of God and see, do you see that in the church today? Or do we see more of a moving towards, this is just a social club, this is what we do on Sunday. Or is there truly the fear of God? God forbid we'd ever use God's good grace as a license to continue in the way we once were. To use it as a license to sin. The Apostle Paul said, God forbid that be the case. But I would encourage you this morning, don't leave in unbelief. You don't have to believe me. You don't have to like me. But believe the truth. He who is the truth. You don't preach the gospel to be liked. You don't preach the gospel to be approved of, to get the applause of men. You preach the gospel because we're commanded to. Repent and believe. I don't have to save you. I have an obligation to tell you. I have an obligation to preach the word. But I can't save you. But do not reject Him. Repent and believe the Gospel and run to Christ this morning. He will not cast you out. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we thank You that You are so good to us. We are so undeserving of the least of Your blessings. And yet we who are in the faith and in Christ today can leave here in a few moments rejoicing that we've been redeemed we've been saved. But Lord, may we never look at that as something that we've done, something that we've earned, something we had a right to, that you were required some way, somehow to be mindful of us, but that Lord, we would see it for exactly what it is, your loving kindness extended to a people who are totally undeserving of it. Father, I do pray that we who are Christians today, those who are true believers, we would live and be reminded of the fear of God again. Lord, that we would not take this for granted and think that we are safe. We don't have to be concerned about living in the fear of God. Father, may we be reminded of the goodness that has been extended to us. Lord, may we not be able to just simply write off 
those who are not converted. Father, give us a burden for people in such a way that we know salvation is of the Lord, but that does not give us a reason and an excuse not to tell them. How shall they hear without a preacher? Lord, if we've dismissed ourselves from this responsibility, Lord, convict us of that through the Spirit. Or maybe we've convinced ourselves that it's just the preacher's job. May we all see the command to go and to preach the gospel. Not save them, preach the gospel. And we know that your will is going to be done. Lord, according to your will and your purposes today, if there be one or more than one, there could be many here today who have never repented and believed the gospel, may today be that day of salvation. Lord, we even pray for those that may join us online. Father, we know that your word goes forth and it does not return void. Lord, help us to leave here in a few moments, meditate in thinking upon these truths. For it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen.